Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Chloe Prendergast. And I'm Emma Williams. We're so glad you've joined us today. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands and have created this podcast in our search to find fun new ways to share and talk about music we love. Each episode, we explore a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Today's guest is violinist Rachel Beasley, who I met about seven years ago. She taught me violin for a while, and now we work together in a few great orchestras in Europe and Australia. Chloe also got to know her in The Hague, and we're really excited to have her as our guest today. She's brought in Symphonie Fantastique by 19th century French composer Hector Berlioz. We do our best to define the relevant music terms throughout the chat, but because this is our world and we're human, there might be things that we miss. So please let us know what these are, and we will be sure to clarify them in future episodes. And don't worry about trying to remember the pieces and recordings we talk about. They are in the show notes, along with a link to a Spotify playlist. So you can go back and listen to all the pieces from this podcast yourself. Thanks for joining us and enjoy Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique. you for joining us yeah. <laughs> uh, and on this podcast we like having our guests introduce themselves uh-huh. so do you mind starting by introducing yourself okay so I am an Australian violinist a director a concert master and a teacher and I'm also the co-artistic director of the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra mm-hmm. you met Emma in Australia yes and then I met you in the Hague. Yes, yes. And yeah, I mean, it's just wonderful, those connections. And, and I think that's what we love about this orchestra is that we have these connections uh, to uh, Australian musicians who are, have based themselves in Europe, like Emma. And and we also, you know, expand to to bring other people in as well. And just to, to really make that network an important part of our music making and See, see how much we can develop the scene. And I've seen from you guys what you're doing. Um, you know, you're, you're exploring new territories and um, that's what I really admire from seeing you both uh, sort of really excel in your field. Oh, thanks. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I think that is the one of the best things about what we do, um, at least for me, is the, the bringing people together and they all bring their own sort of energy and their backgrounds and it just like every single project that you do is going to be different in its its you know unique way and it will bring a certain type of energy and like inspiration that every time you yeah you just never get bored (laughs) absolutely um so you've brought us quite an interesting piece um could we call it a bit troubled grandiose a bit um (laughs) definitely change history um absolutely in some ways um maybe it's quite it's quite a big piece how do you want to start getting into it (laughs) because that's already an interesting question I think (laughs) yeah well I think if you think about the the subtitle of 
of this piece, <laughs> episode in the life of an artist. Um, it it was a as a very exceptional artist that this piece was written by, and it was written about himself and his experiences in the, a certain state of mind. Um, yes, <laughs> but I think what what it did to music history was mind boggling. Uh, what it did to the course of the symphony orchestra, to instrumentation, to the expansion of an, of an idea, to all of the, the creative um, ideas that came from that, I, I think are, make this one of the uh, real pivotal works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Before we go any further, here's some background on Berlioz and how this piece came about. Hector Berlioz was a French composer at the start of the 19th century. He was apparently a very isolated and moody teenager who then became obsessed with Beethoven and Shakespeare. In 1828, when he was 25, he saw a production of Hamlet and became obsessed with the actress playing Ophelia, Harriet Smithson. After sending her multiple unanswered love letters, he then wrote Symphony Fantastique for her, hoping it would finally make her love him back. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work. Definitely not. Nope. <laughs> anyway, the symphony is a programmatic work, which means the music portrays non-musical things, like narratives and experiences. We'll go through this in more detail later, but for now, this piece has five movements, each depicting a scene of the life of the artist suffering from unrequited love. Each movement gradually gets more and more disturbing as the artist loses his grip on reality. Um, and can we actually talk about the program of this piece can you talk us through what this piece is about <laughs> oh gosh yeah well it's it's very descriptive um mm -hmm. yeah he's he starts off with these daydreams um and the thing about Berlioz is that he was pretty obsessed uh with this woman and he actually ended up marrying her um yeah maybe let's start there <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay, so Chloe and I both studied this in um, music history. Um, I think it's a pretty standard thing to study at university for musicians. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Definitely got a lot of things that you can have a look at yes. <laughs> um, in the music and in the story of it. So we are, we're pretty sure um, that we did not learn the full story <laughs> of this, um, you know, the background of it and what exactly happened to Berlioz and blah, blah, blah. Um, in our music history because we were going through it the other, like the last couple of days and we just got a little bit freaked out by the fact that he was just a bit of a deranged stalker man really I I just yeah um okay so should we just give a little bit of a background <laughs> for that okay <laughs> Well, I mean, it could, it's also related to his sort of obsession with Shakespeare. I mean, so he went to go and see a play of Hamlet. He was obsessed with Ophelia, who was the, and the actress, the actual actress that played the, the part of Ophelia. And, um, yeah, he, he, he sort of wrote letters and she just didn't respond. She didn't know who he was, so she didn't respond. So he ended, Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he would walk around Paris at night and, and be, you know, quite off his tree. And, uh, and then I, I think as, as a result of this, this passion, he, he had to write it down. So he, he, wrote, he wrote this symphony. Um, but apparently she didn't go to the premiere, but she went later. He bought her two tickets to the best seats in the house for the second premiere to get her there. Oh, he bought her a ticket. Oh, 
Well, I mean, it would be quite overwhelming, wouldn't it, be to listen to a symphony about you, about yourself, <laughs> like go from Whoa. somebody you've never met. <laughs> yes, <laughs> brave woman. But evidently, they they uh, they didn't uh, it didn't last. But it, it was obviously uh, she was his muse, and um, clearly, yeah. yeah. And the muse, the muse is is played out with this um, theme. So he he wrote this thematic material, um, or he used a thematic material which is actually written earlier. But he he used this idea and turned it into a phrase. And then over the course of the five movements, uh, he does uh, he affects the phrase in different ways and gives it different um, characters essentially, even though it's the same it's the same um, melody that that lasts throughout the whole thing. And that melody is is sort of is um, associated with her as yes. that muse. Yeah. As you just heard Rachel talk about, Berlioz uses this melody as the theme for his beloved throughout the piece. The, the beginning is just the daydreams, the, the first part, the second part. Um, so he meets, he meets his beloved at the ball. And then he goes, then he has this, this countryside uh, moment. And you've got to think this pastoral idea is was very prevalent. I mean, he composes like Beethoven writing the pastoral symphonies and symphony and um, that that element of, of bringing nature inside um, it was it was an extremely important part of uh, the romantic idea or of bringing the, the, the idea of the listener outside. Um, and then, you know, then it, it seems like everything's fine, but actually there's always this sense of anguish in the background that, no, no, it's not okay. No, it's definitely not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. <laughs> definitely not okay. And then it goes down a very, very dark alley, um, and then you get the bassoons out, you know, you need them at moments like that. And uh, he dreams that he's killed his beloved. He takes opium, right? Like, doesn't isn't that part of the thing? He takes opium. Yeah, dreams he's killed his beloved. Yeah, and then he realizes he's going to be condemned to death. So then the march to the scaffold is his own death that he is foreseeing. Uh, and 
you know, he he hears this melodic line just before the the guillotine comes down, or before the final blow, and you and you hear it very descriptively. That's that's what's so extraordinary about hearing this music. You and you feel the tension and the and the anguish all the way throughout. But you're also then brought into this idea of this melodic line keeps making you feel the the, the kind of almost naivety and and um, that those are the lucid moments that he has. Um, and then, yeah, at the end, it's it's all gone pretty haywire, and uh, yeah, the the witches, the witches' Sabbath, and and sorceresses, and and they've all come together to go to his funeral. So it's basically, you know, hang out and scream and groan, and so he he gets he gets. Let's just say it's it's a satanic <laughs> orgy. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, we're going out there. Um, and, yeah, the, the funeral tolls. And then that's where we hear the Dies Irae. And, you know, in the same way that you hear that in other requiems, the effect that the Mozart requiem, for instance, the Dies Irae, and that it's it just hits you. I mean, it really it's it's the day of wrath it's 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 really that final moment and and he uses it with such power at the end by bringing in the the church bells and um and the the brass in these in these choruses uh it just it just really sort of yeah brings it all together at the very end (laughs) yeah i just find that when the brass come in sort of in the middle of that that final movement and everything else is happening in the orchestra and the strings are kind of doing lots of complicated things and then the brass are just like bum 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 it's just like oh god (laughs) we're all going to hell you just heard us talking about the diacide which is a super old latin chant from the 13th century which describes the last judgment of the bell tolls of death the saved are taken to heaven, and the unsaved cast to the eternal flames of hell. Many composers have used this melody over the centuries, including Mozart in his Requiem, which you can hear more about by going to our first episode with Dominic Giardino. But for now, here is the actual Gregorian chant version for reference. Here is the brass playing the Dies Irae chant in the last movement of Symphonie Fantastique. incredible and like it's such incredible music you're right it's pushing so many sound um 
boundaries. It's like such an incredible thing. And then what must it have been like to sit in that audience and be like, oh my God, this guy wrote this thing for me. me. <laughs> yes. We did the, we were researching this and then we realized that because we were like, she just like decided to marry him. Like what, who was like, whatever. But then it turns out it, it sounds like he took a lethal dose of opium in front of her. And she then got hysterical and agreed to marry him. <laughs> and then he pulls out, like conveniently, he pulls out from his pocket the antidote for the opium oh that he's goodness. just taken. Wow. And then they married. And then it did not last. It didn't last. <laughs> but he he did take care of her for the rest of his life. Yes. Yeah. Which like that's I guess something. Well sure that makes it all okay. But, no, 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 for sure not. It doesn't. No. <laughs> but uh, but the influence that that he had on on other composers, and uh, I've got to say, we've just um, recorded the Sasson piano quintet, and uh, on also on on period instruments. And while we were playing that, I, I was also sort of looking and going, "Oh, this is this is really you know sort of similar." And and the last movement in that has has been really influenced by those by those sound worlds that Berlioz wrote. So even within a piano quintet you can still get those uh, those those kind of witches and goblins and you know all that all this the scary stuff that comes out of it. Uh, but I, I'd say that the trajectory of who who was influenced is even like right up to present day. Um, if you if you think of any Star Wars film, uh, it has an ide fixe. It, it has the same thing. It uses a thematic material which is for one character. And I, I saw a documentary about John Williams writing the final um, version, the final <laughs> Star Wars, and he had kept the same melodic fragments for all of the characters, even if it transferred to their children. Like the Ide Fix, which is the love theme in Symphony Fantastique that you heard before, John Williams uses this theme throughout the Star Wars movies to represent the Skywalker family members passed down through the generations. Sort of, if you think of Berlioz in that way, if, we we relate to it more. in if you think of uh, film music that that goes through that, or or even I was thinking of like Lenny Bernstein writing yeah. West Side Story. It's again, it's that sort of extremes of of characters, um, and yeah. and and also just awesome rhythms. Yeah. You just heard the rhythmical mambo from West Side Story by Leonard Bernstein. We know Bernstein was a fan of Berlioz. Bernstein even did one of his famous Young People's Concerts on Symphony Fantastique, which is really great, and we've linked a video of it in the show notes so you can watch it yourself. 
He perfectly sums up the work, stating, Berlioz tells it like it is. You take a trip, you wind up screaming at your own funeral. I mean, I, I always think that's so cool about Berlioz, just you getting these really mixed up rhythms. Like, he, he, was, he was criticized. He was criticized for the way he composed. I mean, it's, a, it's not like that everyone thought this was all very nice. Um, but, you know, you need people like that to, to pull things apart so that they can go even further and yeah, shake um, it up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that everyone has to go down the same. Uh, Maybe not. <laughs> I wouldn't wish a sort of opium deranged nightmare on everyone. But um, no. like, thanks for doing it. Or for anyone. Us. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, do you have any thoughts about how Hector Berlioz was as a person? I mean, we sort of have a bit of historical documentation about some of his uh emotional states tendencies <laughs> characteristics <laughs> what what's your image of him in your head yeah well i think he's very typical of that period of the early romantic period i think the experimentation with certain uh, uh drug enhancing uh, ways mm-hmm. of, of being and uh ways of seeing them, the the self as the centre of the emotional experience and the centre of the artistic experience, that was that was really very much uh, at the forefront of this early romantic style. And I think he really encapsulates that um, by putting himself in the centre of this piece. Uh, and the piece, the piece, you know, he, even by giving it, like you said, is grandiose title, the Symphony Fantastique um, or Fantastic Symphony, he, he's immediately said, this isn't going to be this like anything else. This is going to be something different. Where where his mind had went <laughs> to, to go and find those, <laughs> those ideas, um, we, we will never quite know. But I think where, where what resulted in it, I think, is, is a fantastic insight for, for us, especially in a historical perspective, to go, what, what was going on in the sound colours of orchestral playing at that time because he was so explicit in the score about how it should sound. Also know that the first performances of the Bellios was were were pretty well disastrous. Um, and, yeah, <laughs> and, and they were done under two rehearsals, and it was it was impossible. They he wanted to have 130 musicians on stage, and they couldn't build the stage to fit the musicians. And so it you know they they faced he faced um, some you know huge challenges to 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 get what his artistic vision across. I mean, he, he did finally manage to do it, but it, it, it was not, it wasn't an easy process. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's, um, cause there's two harps in the, um, waltz movement, second movement. Yeah. Um, and they just couldn't find two harps that could play it for a really <laughs> long time. <laughs> no. And I love it that he che- he wanted to have a, a serpent, which is which is a really snake-like looking instrument, a wind instrument, um, and an ophicleide, which 
sort of is something that comes now as a tuber. Um, but he realised that the serpent just couldn't cut it. You know, it just wasn't going to work. So in his mind he thought this instrument would work, but in reality it didn't work. So that that amount of experimentation, really taking it to the limit, really it puts you in that space of what a contemporary composer now it tries to experiment with. They, they'll try and put different instrumentations together. Occasionally it works, occasionally it doesn't. Occasionally you've got to rewrite it to make it work. And he, he never, he never um, objected to, to, to rewriting things. Um, you know, he, he wrote this incredible um, program because it is very, you know, that's, the, that's, the, that's the new thing about this too is having the program that goes with it, which you're meant the to. The story, yeah. Yeah, the actual story. And he changed that several times. I mean, he didn't change the content, but he changed the, um, the sort of uh, the focus of, of that story to make mm. it clearer and clearer for his audience over a period of, you know, 20 years or so. Yeah. Yeah, because it says in like the first edition that everyone, it, you know, maybe even someone should recite these bits of sort of program in between each yes. movement so that it makes it really clear what the story is. And then sort of 10 years later when the second version comes out, he says, you know, either you've got to do it everyone in the audience has to have the program printed and they can read it and then you have to listen to and watch this other piece of mine, um, which is this sort of dramatised um, piece with an actor and whatever and it's this whole big thing or just listen to the symphony without anything and the music will speak for itself. It's like, yeah. okay. <laughs> like one or the other. Yeah. You'll hear us talk more about this later but an orchestra called Aurora Orchestra, led by Nicholas Collin, actually did a semi-stage version of Symphony Fantastic at the BBC Proms last year, where they had an actor introducing the piece and reciting Berlioz's text in between each movement. Here's an audio clip of the introduction of the ball now, but you can watch the whole video of it on YouTube, which we've also linked in the show notes. The artist sees his beloved again in a ball during a glittering fate. The whirl of the dance fails to distract him, and the Ide fix haunts him still, setting his heart beating during a brilliant waltz. I don't know. For me, it's the sound worlds that he creates. That it's still, it's still something that brings a sense of what what's possible. You know, I, I kind of it expands my idea of what sound is, what we can do with sound as a musician from the inside of the orchestra. It, it you have such a visceral experience performing this piece. Uh, you really, you really have to be on the edge of your seat to play it, and and get completely absorbed in in the the swirling and the and the sort of extravagances of it. Um, and I think that that's kind of why it made such a profound difference for me when I heard it or when I played it the first time um, when I was about eighteen or so. You know. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us about that first time that you played it? Oh. Yeah, it was. Um, it's it's just it just sits in my memory. And and you mentioned about the ball the other before and the harps. Um, that that was the moment for me, um, which I now understand is 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 a moment of flow. 
uh, of being in the moment of being in the zone it is something that I I, I teach and I and I, I work and a lot ar- around this concept but actually it existed in me before I knew what it was um, and it was exactly around that that second movement the ball because we got to perform it in a ballroom and it wow. was it was in a the government house ballroom in Melbourne which is my hometown where I live and it was this it was the orchestra from the university and we um, we got to perform the whole piece and it was that especially that sensation of the harps I was sitting next to the harps and to to feel their their sort of energy when they come in and the depth of the the range that that was used on the, on those instruments, I I could I without knowing it I could I could see the people sort of or <laughs> the ghosts <laughs> dancing around the ballroom as a result. Like in the performance, I have no idea how how the notes were being played in front of me. I wasn't having to deal with any of the physical. Uh, engagement of oh gosh this is difficult music I've got to play all these notes how do I do it I was totally in this zone of of being moved around the hall and I could physically feel myself being danced around the hall as a result of of that so it it sort of really left a big bark (laughs) in in my my consciousness my young consciousness of of what it meant to be an orchestral musician and that you could literally be moved by the music Um, and I and I did feel that everyone in the hall was also feeling that the, re- the reverberation around the room was was like that and in a way it was almost probably a similar size to the hall that that Berlioz did the premiere in and the Paris Conservatoire and you just you kind of imagine that you know that he was there <laughs> somehow um so that's that that made a that made a significant difference um for me in in understanding what it meant to um to be part of an orchestra and to be involved in that physical side of the of the orchestra and how the music then would, was affecting me. Yeah. Um, can you talk about some of your favourite parts of this piece? Oh, uh, there are many. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I love about this piece is the way he uses the instruments in combination but also... Uh, as solos, as soloists, um, I think the especially the the oboe and the cor anglais. When you have those solo moments in the orchestra, suddenly you feel this um, sense of uh, isolation or, or or being on a hillside. It, it each each character of each instrument puts you in a in a physical environment, and I think he does that very masterfully. Again, those that when the harps are coming in, you're immediately transported into the ballroom. That that really draws you into that space. Uh, and and similarly, the 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 ones on the countryside brings you up to the to the mountainside. And yeah, the witch's sabbath it just draws you down in, into the earth. So those 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 each each movement has a real sort of element which I I am really drawn to. Uh, I, I feel that the um, yeah the march to the scaffold is almost uh, 
like you, you kind of get so excited about it and you go, oh, hold on a minute. No, this is, <laughs> this is the wrong march you want to be on. <laughs> don't, want to, don't want to be going there. <laughs> it's kind of a bit too enthusiastic. So it's it's the demands that it places on the instrument to to come up with those different colours. And um, as a violinist in though in that in this music, you you get to try out lots of different things, and you get to try different techniques. Um, and again, you can you can play these really beautiful melodic lines, but then you can also be just playing texture. So he he really gives these moments where you're using tremolo, um, where you're you're just creating a color palette, or the colleague know that you're really like making making these uh, kind of brittle sounds because you're hitting you're literally hitting your strings with the back of your bow. Here you can hear the violins shimmering by using a technique we call tremolo. Basically, it's just moving your bow super fast on one note, which creates this kind of ethereal sparkly texture and contrasts against the bass instruments playing an ominous tune. And here, you can hear the brittle sounds of the violins hitting the strings with the wood of the bow, a technique called colenio, while the winds play the tune of the witches dancing around. So it's for me. It's not necessarily a movement. It's it's the different textures that that you're allowed to experiment with. Um, so you're you're left sitting in the middle of the orchestra. You're left um, kind of you you give. You, it's like the the speakers are turned up really loud, <laughs> and you've got every everything in between that that you you have. You're experiencing right in the middle of the orchestra. Um, mm. So. Yeah. It's 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 one of those pieces, I think. <laughs> it requires to be in the three three dimensional experience or, or multi dimensional experience. Um, yeah, absolutely. And how, um, because it is such a big piece, how do you suggest people who haven't heard it before kind of get dip their toes in or get get started with getting to know the piece? Well, I think this is this is great to have an on, a concept of the the program to start with, um, because otherwise it can just wash over your head a little bit. But it's also amazing music to listen to without without knowing the the context of it. But um, look, I think the ball scene—it's a waltz—would would be a great one just to go in and, and listen to. Um, it it sounds. You know, like any other waltz, there's nothing too crazy going about it, um, and it, it gets you. It sets you up that for that feeling of movement, 
and it's the, the changes, that shift in character between the movement and then stillness and then movement again and stillness. And the, the, the dance movements, he has the two sort of dance movements, the witch's Sabbath is also a dance. So you, you have this those elements and a march so kind of knowing what kind of what kind of dance you want to, do you want to go do you want to feel like you want to walk in the countryside then listen to the third movement if you want to do a, a march then then there's your fourth movement so um yeah I think it 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 would be fascinating to uh yeah to go for a walk with this music and on your headphones and and um just see what different energies it gives you because it really will uh, give you a, a, a different uh, experience in each movement. They're really all quite quite separate from each other. Mm. Or have a dance party. Yeah. And you could like walk the waltz. You could like do a little march, have a witch's Sabbath dance. Like that's the right mood for some something. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's a house party waiting to happen. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's perfect. I think everybody should try put, Dance, having a dance party to each of these movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's great. I think, yeah. However, we're not endorsing the opium part. <laughs> no, we're certainly not. No. No, but you will, you, will, you will discover when you trip over because there are so many moments where he, tri- he trips the, the musicians over as well. And it, I, I still have this, a memory of there's this one bit where the entire orchestra goes completely out of syn- is in syncopation, so it's completely off the beat, and it goes for a certain number of beats, and you, you unless you're counting, you don't you don't get off that ride at the right time as everyone else. <laughs> you're in trouble. So it's um, it's a it's actually a really amazing moment moment in the symphony. I'm going to say actually that's probably one of my favourite moments because then he turns the theme into the major in the in the last movement. And so he changes. You can find that as an actual quote rather than me swinging. <laughs> and here is that actual part where the orchestra goes out of sync and then the strings bring the theme back. theatrical it's theatrical uh, orchestration and uh, that's that's one of the, one of the recordings or performances which recently absolutely blew my head off was uh, this performance by Aurora Orchestra at, at the Proms concert where they literally took it into the theatrical um, environment and turned the orchestra into the staging um, because actually one of those initial uh, directions from Berlioz was that the orchestra should be behind a gauze and that you shouldn't even see the orchestra performing this. Um, but in in a retrospect, I'd say I wonder if he changed his mind about that because seeing the musicians interact and and especially with in that performance um, where they're playing from memory, the the interaction on stage is is just phenomenal. Um, just and they have the you know the actor coming on as well as 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 Berlioz and. I'm really fascinated in that that whole world of presenting music in an educational way, but in also in a in a way that activates the the, the audience's imagination. 
beyond even more what's just written on the page in terms of the notes or or the program notes like most people sort of sit there and read a program notes but actually doesn't necessarily go into their systems in the same way as if it's said from stage what what is your ideal performance your dream performance of this i think that that one by nicholas colin comes pretty well close you know the fact that they have the masks on and and that they're the lighting effects and things it's it's done in a way which I think adds to the effect. Um, it doesn't distract. Mm. Well, that sounds like a pretty good place to start wrapping up. We do have one final question. Um, do you have a piece from another instrument's repertoire that you're jealous of? Ooh. Um, I would say any French horn part in any Beethoven or Brahms symphony. <laughs> that does not surprise um, me. <laughs> yeah. Because when, when I was young, um, I, I, I started the violin basically because I heard it was the most difficult instrument in the world to learn. Oh, my God. <laughs> At the age of six, I was like, yeah, that's the challenge I want. And I was quite happy about it. And then about a few years later, somebody told me in the school playground, you know, the French horn's the most difficult instrument in the world to learn. And I was so upset. And I, for a split second, I went, oh, am I going to change? Do I need to learn the French horn? I seriously <laughs> thought about it. And then I went, no, 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 that's not for me. I'm, I'm on my path. I know what I want. So, but ever since then, I think I've always had a soft spot for the French horn and, um, and a little bit of a French horn crush, yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not a crush. The, the effect <laughs> that they have on an orchestra um, I think is one of the most, um, it's one of the most important roles but it's also the most profound and and the, the, the warmth that they give to an orchestra but also the colour and the drive and the energy. I mean, of course, every instrument is responsible for doing that but, yeah, that would be my, my little thing. <laughs> oh, okay. Good to know. <laughs> oh great questions guys (laughs) thanks um and if our listeners want to find you support you uh find your stuff where should they go oh great um well on yeah online um our orchestra is probably a great one to look at because we've got a lot of resources there um that's um arco.org.au arco.org.au or my own website, rachelbeasley.com. Perfect. Those will be linked in the show. Yeah. I I feel like I didn't ask you guys questions. Is there anything that you wanted to say about that repertoire that that you want to? No. Just the only thing that our 21st century feminist ideals just have a lot of trouble just dealing with the whole story behind this, this piece. You know, just like oh, no. yeah, run away, Harriet. <laughs> just <you> know. <laughs> <laughs> also, like it's it was interesting for us. We were just talking about this yesterday, or today, this morning, whatever. Sometime we were talking about this. <laughs> that when we first heard this piece, I remember hearing this story. Maybe not fully. Like I definitely didn't hear the part where he actually took opium to trick her into marrying mm-hmm. him. Yeah. Like yeah. that part, I didn't hear. But generally the the whole idea of him writing this piece for her to sort of chase her I remember thinking that that was like oh yeah like that's normal you know that's what 
troubled artist men do. Yeah, okay, yeah. sure. And then, of course, she eventually married him. But now I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe that was so built in. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we, just have to, um, we just have to champion more of the 19th century female composers and performers because there were so many of them. And the amount of female violinists that I have heard in the last couple of years uh, is is mind-boggling and I just beside myself that I had never heard of these violinists before like never and that none of them became as famous as their male counterparts and I think they were just as exceptional and often not more beautiful in their playing and um, more virtuosic and you know in, in a way female singers got have been heard and, and are recognized but um I, for me, that that would be a way to sort of go back through history and and try and shine a light on that. And um, yeah, can you shout a couple of them out? Who are those violinists? Oh well, Maud Powell is one of them. <laughs> but also in terms of um, uh, composers, Louise Ferenc, uh she's one that we've paired with the Sasson Piano Quintet, and just writing her. I mean, she was she was awesome. She wasn't a violinist; she was a pianist, but she. Uh, was the first um, she taught in the Paris Conservatoire and she wanted to earn the same as her male counterparts and she fought cool. for it and she got it. And uh, she also was not allowed to teach composition. She was allowed to teach piano but something was not, not quite right about her teaching composition until her knowledge was published and became so successful that her male counterparts had to accept her as a composition teacher wow. at the Paris Conservatoire. So, you know, there are, there are those, um, those women that, you know, that are really deserving yeah. <laughs> of, 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 yeah, of, of what, what they achieved in their lifetimes and what they um, achieved artistically, but also uh, for for future women and what their possibilities were, and we think how many fantastic female composers there are now, and a lot of them do sit in positions at, at universities. And I, you know, I think we need to uh, applaud those who who set that up for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. so much for tuning in to Outside the Music Box. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Rachel Beasley. If so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and tell all your friends about it. It really makes a difference in the algorithm of the internet magic and helps our visibility. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to share music that you love, you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram at musicboxconcerts. Write in with comments or questions that you have and we'll get back to you. In the show notes, we've included links to three Spotify playlists, one specifically for the pieces in this episode and the others for all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast so far. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to support Rachel is her website, rachelbeasley.com, which we've linked in the show notes. See you next time outside the music box.